pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity to go across multiple boundaries, be it geographical boundaries, cultural boundaries, language boundaries, uh, whatever they may be, Lord, but you have given us that great opportunity to cross them to share the love of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for our friends, the OAs, who are in Tokyo, and others, Lord, who are in Japan, sharing the love that we have, knowing you as Lord and Savior. Lord, we do pray for this country. Lord, we pray that their eyes would become open to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that they would see the false hope that they have in all those other false gods that they worship. Lord, we pray that as things are happening there, that there will be a, a wave of revival of sorts, but more, Lord, of awakening, coming to know you as Lord and Savior. So, Lord, we lift up the nation of Japan and all of the missionaries there, that you would work in and through to bring yourself glory and honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're on uh, chapter 19. I'm going to back up a little bit to verse 11 and recover a little bit that uh, we went over. One, and that's kind of one of the reasons I chose the Revelation song. I feel sorry for Guy, though, being cursed with all that hair. <laughs> Uh, boy, that, that's got to be tough. You know? I, I love any time he sings or the Gaithers or any, I just I love their stuff. I had a, an older lady in our church who was uh, dead stuck in the 1952 Baptist hymnal when I got there, and I kept saying, "We're gonna we're gonna grow out of this," and she said, "No, we're not. No, we're not." Well, I introduced her some of the Gaither music and stuff and this song was one of them along with uh, 10,000 Reasons and about six months before she passed away she came up to me she said listen if you do not have the Revelation song and that 10,000 Reasons at my funeral I will ask God to come back and get you <laughs> and uh, so we did but uh, there's so much truth in that song, and there's so much worship uh, that it's just such a one of my favorite, one of my wonderful songs. And I think a lot of it we see in verses 11 through 16 of chapter 19. So let's start picking up in, in verse 11. We'll recap just a little bit here, and then we'll try to, to move on. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. 
and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There is a sense that everything that has occurred before this point in this book of Revelation is, is just an introduction to this moment when Jesus comes as king, when he returns as, as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He returns to earth in his power and his glory. Isaiah writes, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries that the nations may tremble at your presence. Well, they're pretty much going to at this moment when Jesus returns on a white horse. They have to remember, in these times, most wars were fought on foot. There was very few that <coughs> mounted armies. So to have a horse is an advantage. But here he comes, all of his army is on horse. And the horse spoke of honor. It spoke of power, uh, speed in battle. Of course, none of the physical aspects of battle are needed because Jesus is just going to speak and the sword that flows from his mouth, the words of God, will be what wins the victory in this battle. He comes as a judge and a general to make war, but all he's going to do is speak, and the war will be over. This is a Jesus that cannot be controlled. You know, there's some today that, well, I'll take God, but I'm on him on my terms, or he's, he'll, I'll mold him into a box. You're not going to mold Jesus into any box. You're not going to have a suggestion box where you can put in suggestions that you do do this and, and do that. No. Jesus is going to do it His way. And He's going to come under the authority of the Father and He'll return to earth to bring His kingdom into fruition. Walford writes, all of these passages point to the sad conclusion that in the day of judgment it is too late for men to expect the mercy of God. There is nothing more inflexible than divine judgment where grace has been spurned. The scene of awful judgment come, which comes from this background is a flat contradiction of the modern point of view that God is dominated entirely by His attribute of love. You know, when you witness to people, you'll always hear this. Well, God is love. He, he won't condemn anybody. And let me give you the simple answer to that. Tell them, you're right. You condemn yourself because you rejected Jesus Christ. He's offered it to you. He has offered you eternity by rejecting His way of getting it. You've done it to yourself. He's offered you love. So you can agree with Him and then turn their words around on Him and then pretty much they'll either continue the conversation or they'll walk away. Uh, most of the time, sadly, they walk away. But I have had a few that... I've never thought about it like that. So, so you can use that as an opportunity in witnessing. Everything he does is righteous. 
Everything he does is just. Uh, Clark writes, the wars which he wages are from no principle of ambition, lust of power, or extension of conquest and dominion. And it's not dominion because he owns everything already anyway. They are righteous in their principles and in their object. And this is perhaps what no earthly potentate could ever say. Uh, like uh, what Spurgeon says, Jesus is the only king who always wars in this fashion by his words. He just speaks and it's done. Why are they like flames of fire? Well, first, to discern the secrets of the heart. Of course, the fire burns and gets out the dross. There are no secrets here that Christ does not see. There is no lewd thought, no unbelieving skepticism that Christ does not read. There is no hypocrisy, no formalism, no deceit that he does not scan as easily as a man reads a page in a book. His eyes are like a flame of fire to read us through and through to know our inmost soul. That is by Spurgeon. Now the last time Jesus, uh, earth saw Jesus was when? What was the last time Earth saw Jesus? Cross. At the cross, correct. And he was wearing a crown of thorns. But now he comes back not wearing the Stephanos crown of achievement, but the diadema, the crown of royalty and authority. He comes back as king. And the crown he wears identifies him as such. The fact that there are many crowns means that Jesus is the ultimate royal authority and power. It is a visible manifestation of what we mean when we say king of kings. It is the expression of unlimited sovereignty. His robe is dripped or sprinkled in blood. Now, Bible students debate whether this is his blood reminding us of the cross or the blood of his enemies. Either is quite possible. And it might be both. We, we just do not know. But we do know that the robe has blood on it. And as Paul says, we see now dimly, but that day we'll see clearly and we will know. And boy, have I got a lot of questions that I, that I like to know. You know, especially back in creation. Uh, there's so many questions. There's so many questions about this universe that he's put together that I just... Uh, wonder at and can't wait to know the full answers to. But here, if you noticed, as I mentioned, there's no armor or weapon of any kind of, for any soldier in the great army that follows Jesus. The only weapon they have is the only one they need. And that's Jesus Christ and his words. The idea here isn't that Jesus holds the sword of the Romphia. Uh, that's the sword short sword like a back buccaneer or a Roman soldier would use uh, or that he is spitting swords it refers to the power of his word. His word has so much power that all he has to do again is say it and we can think back to John 1 1 where you know, uh, Jesus created all the heavens and the earth back to Genesis 1 Jesus that God created everything he spoke his words of such power, we cannot comprehend the depth of that power. The name on his thigh, uh, of course, being on the thigh as he rides the horse, of course, it's for prominence so that all would see. Uh, 
being easily visible. At the same time, nobody knew the name except himself. That is, no one can comprehend it perfectly. Now, Clark is among those who believe, and I, I think that this is very possible, that it's what is called a, a tetragrammaton, and that is it's just consonants, no vowels, four letters, Y-H-W-H, -H, Yahweh. And we can take that back into the Old Testament. You know, when they said, well, who shall I say? You know, I am, I am God, Yahweh. And that is the, the holiest name that the Jews had for God. So we don't know for certain, but it's the sacred and holy name of God throughout all time. And I think, you know, that would be a good, if we were to take a, some kind of a shot at what it might be, I think that's probably the best. Verse 17. Then, after they see God, Jesus coming, they have this picture of him on the horse. Then I see an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Notice that this angel is standing in the sun, but yet can be seen, which may indicate that he has a brilliance that is even greater than the sun. He outshines the sun, is, is what we gather from the grammatical reading of this. Now, there is no name given to this angel, which is interesting because this angel is going against the armies of the enemy, against the false prophet and all of those. Uh, it doesn't warrant God coming. It doesn't warrant Jesus, the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to waste my time. You're so insignificant, Satan. I'm just going to send an angel, third class, just got his wings. <laughs> Maybe he made the movie, I don't know. But it's interesting that uh, the angel is standing in the light in the sun and he's still seen. I think this is probably because he's reflecting the glory of God as God sends him out to do this work. The glory of God shines on him and it reflects back so he could be seen. Uh, Erdman writes, this is preparation for the great slaughter of Armageddon presented in a picture of almost repellent realism. Barnhouse writes, the repetition of flesh Five times is revealing. The race is walked in carnal enmity against God, living after the flesh. And now the day of his patience is at end. Newell points to this four different suppers described in the Bible. I, I kind of like this. The supper of salvation, alluded to in Jesus' parable in Luke 14. And then there's the Lord's Supper which we just commemorated this past Sunday, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then there's this supper, the supper of the great God. Now, if you reject the first supper, that is the salvation supper, supper of salvation alluded to by Jesus, the second supper, the Lord's supper, means nothing to you. 
and if that means nothing to you, then you will not be present at the third supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb, but you will be present at the fourth supper, the supper of God, uh, because that's where all these people were just destroyed that we read about. So you have a choice. You see, God gives you a chance to eat with Him. And you're going to one way or the other, but which one are you going to eat at? I think I like the first one first, the Supper of Salvation, which invites you to the Lord's Supper, which promises you the marriage supper of the Lamb. Much better, much better meal. Verse 19. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped in his image. <coughs> These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. And some find it hard to understand how man could be so foolish to try to keep Jesus and his heavenly army off the earth. They suggest these armies initially gathered to battle against each other and turned their fury on the returning Jesus. Uh, yeah, it may be the case we can never underestimate man's stupidity and folly. But even worse, we can never underestimate their hatred of God. Because we are seeing that more and more in today's world. Also note the false prophet continued to do miraculous signs and to deceive many. Newell again writes, this is the incurable insanity of sin. I like that. Which wars away in spite of defeat after defeat against the holy God. If we look down through history, and we can see Satan, and you, you, you remember all the stories in Scripture, how Satan has tried to stop God, he's tried to kill this, you know, the lineage of, of David and of course, to be in the lineage of Jesus, he's tried to do all these things all throughout history, even post-cross. He has tried to eradicate the Bible, and he can't do it. Because this is God's Word. It's God's sovereign Word. And yet, he still continues to try to war against God. And men join in, as Newell says, in that incurable insanity of sin. It just, it's just unfathomable. John wrote no description about this battle. Just that it's an entirely one-sided affair. More of a simple act of judgment than a prolonged battle of war. The battle of Armageddon is the laughter of God against the climax of man's arrogance, writes Barnhouse. A lake of fire, a lake of burning brimstone would not only be intensely hot, but malodorous and fetid as well, says mountains. It is not a pretty picture, but they chose it. They could have easily trusted Jesus Christ, but they decided not to. 
Well, let's move on to chapter 20. We get into some better, a little bit better news. Verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. The angel will subdue Satan. The angel that subdues Satan is anonymous. But what an honor it must be for that angel to be the one to carry that chain. We know that it's not Jesus himself, nor is it Michael or Gabriel or any other high-ranking angel. Some say it's the angel that was standing in the sun and given that honor. We really don't know. Satan has been a problem on earth just as he was in heaven. And finally, he's going to be bound for a thousand years, during which time he can no longer deceive the nation. The final importance of Satan is perhaps indicated in that it is not the Father who deals with him, nor Christ, but an unnamed angel, as I said earlier. Verse 2. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up, and set a seal on him that he should, not, that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Satan tried to imprison Jesus. Couldn't do it. Here, God has no problem, no restraining Satan. And this incarnation is not for punishment. This incarnation, this incarceration, rather not incarnation, incarceration is not punishment, but just restraint at this point. Satan's demonic armies are also restrained and imprisoned. Now, I believe this is a literal imprisonment. I do not believe that something that this is just a figurative thing. I think if God wanted to write figuratively, he would have written figuratively. But I believe here we find literally Satan is bound and he's put into a prison where he can no longer uh, influence the people on this world. And some will say, well, what kind of chain could hold the devil? Well, if God can create the heavens and the earth, he can create a chain. Amen. You know, as simple as that. The elaborate measures, according to Mouse, taken to ensure his custody are most easily understood by implying the complete cessation of his influence on earth. So not only is he just being put into a prison, his he can't even communicate outside of that prison. His demonic activity will be ceased. There will be no influence on the earth other than the influence of Christ at this millennial period. And this shows us Satan's main mode of attack. Satan is a deceiver. And his most potent defense in, in, is defense or offense weapon is trying to destroy the word of God. Anytime Satan tries to do anything, he tries to twist, manipulate, rewrite, reword the word of God. Which is why we go all the way back to the garden. Did God really say? If you remember when Adam and Eve were at that tree of fruit, did God really say? Just manipulating God's word. But he's not going to be able to do that 
his influence will no longer be there. Since Satan's work of deception continues though today, we know that he will not be bound in a way that his pa this passage describes just by physical change. He must be bound by spiritual chains. Now, this chain, again, is created by God, so it would have a spiritual nature to it. So he cannot, he is bound to the spiritual chain, so he cannot play mind games with people. He was not bound at the finished work of Jesus at the cross. He was not bound at the resurrection or the founding of the church. And we know this because Peter said that Satan was free to walk about as a roaring lion. But at this point, when Christ returns to earth, he is completely bound. This thousand-year period, often known as the millennium. Now, throughout church history, there's been many different ways, several different ways of understanding this. And I'll try to kind of walk you through a few of them so you can understand it here. The Bible speaks powerfully to other aspects of this millennial earth. Throughout church history, it has often been ignored or denied the promise of the millennial reign of Christ. The early church until Augustine almost universally believed in an earthly historical reign of Jesus initiated by his return, which we just read about. Now, Tychonius in the late 300s was the first to influentially champion a spiritualized interpretation, saying that this millennium is now, and this is where we get the amillennium, it must be understood as a spiritual reign of Jesus, not a literal reign. This view was adopted by Augustine, the Roman Catholic Church, and some Reformation theologians. Growing out of the amillennial viewpoint, that it is just a spiritual reign of Jesus Christ, we come to what is called postmillennialism, saying that the millennium will happen in, in this age before Jesus returned, but that the church will bring it to pass. Well, I don't think that's working too well, that the church is going to bring it to pass. You've got to remember, post-millennialism came out kind of late 1800s. It uh, became really popular when we became into the enlightened age. All of a sudden, mankind was getting these wonderful, great inventions. We learned to fly. We learned to have automobiles, electricity. <coughs> Excuse me. We learned all these different things. All these things became started coming about. Man was having a better, better life. Then all of a sudden, World War I hit. And we were thrown into chaos and disorder again. And people were going, what happened? They felt that the church was going to have such influence that we were just going to grow into the return of Jesus Christ. So that kind of has really fallen apart. Uh, the, the teaching that Jesus will return to this earth before the millennial earth, earth is really what's kind of taking place now, and that's called premillennialism. That when Jesus returns, that's when the millennial reign begins. He becomes he comes right before, and I believe that's what Scripture teaches. I believe it clearly teaches that. We are going through those seven years of, of trials and troubles in the tribulation period, 
And then one day Jesus returns. And he says, okay, I've had enough of this. We're going to put a, put a stop to it. And he's going to speak. And Satan's going to be bound. And the war Armageddon will be over in an instant. I don't believe there's any need to say that, that Satan is only bound uh, only in a spiritual sense because I think he it's a complete bound. It's, it's a physical and spiritual. When we consider the rest of scriptures, the earthly reign of Christ and his people on this earth, it's plainly taught in the Old and New Testaments. In the Old Testaments, we see it in Psalms and Isaiah, Jeremiah, and many other passages that uh, there are over 400 verses and 20 different passages in the Old Testament which deal with this time when Jesus Christ will rule and reign personally over the planet Earth. I think it's quite clear. Uh, to be honest, I think it was a false teaching brought about by Satan that brought into some of these other thinkings, trying to distract people from what God is really going to do. So during this time, when Christ is, is ruling on the earth this thousand years, Satan is locked away, no more mind game influence, no more physical influence. Who will be on the earth? Well, even after the rapture and the vast judgments of the great tribulation, there will still be a lot of people left on earth that have not taken the mark, that have not bowed their knee to the false prophet and after Jesus returns in glory, he will judge those who survived the great tribulation in the judgment of nations, Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. This is not a judgment of salvation, but a judgment of moral worthiness and an entrance into the millennial kingdom of Jesus. The unworthy will be sent into eternal damnation, and those who have not bowed their knee, have not taken the mark, have not pledged allegiance to the evil one, will be allowed into the millennial kingdom. There will still be people being saved during this period. There will be people who perhaps have sat in church for years and never professed Jesus Christ. But they knew they couldn't take the mark. They knew they couldn't bow their knee. They were willing to be martyred, but they didn't. They weren't martyred. And all of a sudden, they're going to realize, oh my, what they said was correct. These people will still be alive on earth. And now they will be in a world that is governed, influenced by Jesus Christ. Fully and wholly. There will be no evil influence on the earth at this time. Some of what we know of the millennial uh, from other passages of Scripture, uh, we read during the millennium, Israel will be the superpower of the world, the leading nation of all the earth, and the center of Israel will be the mountain of the Lord's house, the Temple Mount, uh, which will be the capital, the government of the Messiah. All nations, do a time check here, okay. all nations shall flow to the capital of, of Jesus' government. Um, again, there's some discussion. Is it the Temple Mount? Uh, after I always believed it would be the Temple Mount for years, but recently I've been studying, and I think it's going to be a little bit north of that. There's a water source north of that, which is spoken of concerning the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, 
I'm talking only maybe a quarter mile, not, not very far at all. You could probably throw a rock and hit it, but it's just off. But we'll find out that one day when he does return. It'll be a time perfectly administered and enforced righteousness on this earth when a judgment is made in a court. It'll be a righteous judgment, a, a true judgment. During the millennium, there will be no more war. There will still be conflicts between nations and individuals, but they will be justly, dis, uh, decisively resolved by the Messiah who will reign with him. Isaiah 2 uh, refers to some of that. It is the reign of the Messiah is himself that will change the heart of man. It isn't. The citizens on earth will still need to trust Jesus Christ in his work on their behalf for their personal salvation. None of that will be changed. They still have to trust in Jesus Christ. But during the millennium, the way animals will relate to each other and relate to humans will be transformed. A little child will be safe and able to lead the wolf or the leopard or the lion or the bear. Even the danger of predators like cobras and vipers will be gone. For those of you that don't like snakes, you don't have to worry about them. Uh, in Genesis 9, verses 2 and 3, the Lord gave Noah and all mankind after him the permission to eat meat. At the same time, the Lord put the dread of man in the animals so that that would not be effortlessly prayed uh, for humans. Now, in the reign of the Messiah, this is... Uh, what a lot of the scholars and I, you know, I, I believe it, but I'm not. Uh, it's very difficult to, to grasp it because there's so much that's going to change. At the same time, the Lord put the dread of man of animals, of man and animals, so that they would not be effortless prey for humans. In the reign of the Messiah, that is reversed. For this reason, many think that in the reign of the Messiah, humans will return to being vegetarians as they were before Genesis 9, verses 2 through 3. So maybe that's why McDonald's is coming out with that vegan Big Mac. I mean, I don't know. Uh, it makes sense. It makes sense when you go back to Genesis and you think about how it was before the fall that we would go back to those times. But folks, I like my barbecue. You know? uh, so, I, that, that's the good part. That's the good part. It's like being you know, sedated for a surgery. You don't care. You know, go ahead, cut me. It's fine. Uh, but, you know, God will have it perfect. And however God has it, we'll love it. We'll try to end up here at these last couple statements. During the millennium, King David will have a prominent place in the millennial earth. Many scriptures in Isaiah and Jeremiah on that. The millennium will have a time of purity and devotion to God, Zechariah. There will be the rebuilt temple, of course, and the restored temple on earth. Uh, is it a literal thousand years? I believe it is. We should take the number literally, as there's no other clear evidence to do otherwise. So I believe it tr will truly be a thousand year reign of Jesus Christ. So we'll end up there. We'll pick up in verse 4 next week, and hopefully we'll, we'll get as far as we can and turn it back over to Ken. You know, right now he, he's suffering for Jesus at St. Augustine. Um, I, I guess he suffered in, in Hawaii enough for Jesus, so he'll be back with you uh, 
the week after next, so I'm sure you'll be glad for that. And then we'll, we'll get along. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, it is so exciting to read about the things that are going to take place when you return. And, and Lord, it's hard sometimes to contain the anticipation and the excitement for that day other than the fact, Lord, that we know that it'll be the perfect day when you do return. And until that time, you have commanded us to go and make disciples. You have commanded us to be a witness beginning here in Jerusalem before we go anywhere. So, Lord, help us to be faithful in those little things, to make disciples and to be a witness here. But Lord, we do pray that you come quickly because we see the direction things are going. And it pains us to know that there are many who do not know you and who do not want to know you. But Lord, as we converse with them, as we work among them, and as we walk among them, let us plant seeds that your spirit can, can bring to growth and maybe, Lord, we'll just give them that one question that will cause them to stop and think and maybe come after you. So, Lord, we ask that you grant us that ability to use your word to challenge others. Give us safe travels home. Give us a great night's rest. And let us be a servant in some way tomorrow. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.